0: Welcome to episode 40. Another week, another country, and another state were added, so this week we tied with the highest number of listeners for the week, so thank you so very much. We're into the period of my focus on work and school. I'm sharing my experience at William & Mary, both to include my fondness for the institution, as well as provide a lens for those who might be thinking about graduate or postgraduate work. I think sometimes it sounds daunting, and yet it is. Like anything else, the effort is a fraction of the result. I'm going to jump ahead for a story recognizing that it's Asian American Pacific Islander Month. When Asian American Heritage Week was presented in Congress, it was defeated twice before finally passing and signed into law by President Carter in 1978. Originally, it was just May 1st through the 7th, so of course, I figured it was to honor my birthday. It wasn't until 1980 that President George H.W. Bush signed the law, extending it to a month like other observances. As a comparison, the precursor to Black History Month was in 1926, with the current version signed into law in 1976. I remember when Asian American Month was just a week, and it was then that I started doing some speaking and writing about the unfairness of how one group of society is celebrated differently than another. If you're not familiar with how the Pentagon is laid out, obviously it has five sides, and within those sides there are five rings. The main court the main concourse has the credit union shops and is the main entrance to the building where everyone flows through. For Black History Month, there are several displays throughout the concourse up the ramp as well as on the outer rings of the two next additional floors. For Asian American Pacific Islander Month, there was a very tiny display on an inner ring on the fourth floor. And that was it. I was outraged. I decided I had to do something. I wrote to the building management office and was told that Black History Month is more prominent and that's why there were so many more displays. Nope, that answer wasn't good enough. It just wasn't right. I wrote to my congressman. If you are familiar with how congressional letters work, there is an office in each department that handles congressionals that office sends the letter from the senator or representative to the respective office for a reply. Depending on the level of the response, the answer could be elevated and sometimes just sent back from the Office of Responsibility. So the person I got the first letter from was the same gentleman that talked to me earlier and told my congressman the same answer that he had told me. Now, I wrote my congressman back and first said, how did you consider this response adequate? And secondly, I want a response that better addresses my concern. Of course, a staffer just processed my correspondence as not important. I eventually got a letter back that basically said, we applaud Captain twilliger's persistence with this matter. Okay that part of the letter was obviously condescending but i kept reading they agreed that in the future they would provide this display on the main concourse and throughout the building it was the next year it was on the main concourse later that year i noticed a similar issue for the native american heritage month i stopped by the building manager's office and and asked if they were going to move the display to the main concourse. The next day it was. The purpose of these varied heritage celebrations are to educate and share the contributions to our nation and that recognition should be done in a consistent manner so that both the minority group can feel a sense of pride of their heritage and to inform others on how the success of our nation It's because of the many threads that are woven into the full fabric of America. Just this week, I saw an advertisement on TV for Asian American Pacific Islander Month. And all it said was AAPI recognition. Many don't know what AAPI recognition is. So, I did. I tweeted my concern to that broadcaster. So that's a story I wanted to share this month as we do celebrate Asian American Pacific Islander Month. I would take you back to the episode with Joanne and Ken where we talked about the challenges of growing up in a white family and community. It's my view that adoptees from Asian countries can further see these public displays of celebration and add to their personal pride of how others like them have contributed to where we are today. Thank you for indulging me on that story and see how these types of things, which may seemingly look small or insignificant, really do affect people in a very meaningful way. And when we see inequity, let's lift up our voices. Let's get back to the journey. Do you remember when I met General Bowles that time in Randolph, it was the time that my boss introduced me to him just after I got back to the gym from running along the flight line at Randolph Air Force Base. Since we were part of the Deputy Chief of Staff of Personnel before the merger, General Bowles was still the commander of the Air Force Personnel Center, so he made visits to each major command including ours. Colonel Desmond was the leader at the time. As Colonel Desmond was showing General Bowles around, he finally made it to the third floor. I was in my office and heard Colonel Desmond's voice, so I came out to greet them. He was about to say, "General Bowles, this is..." and General Bowles interrupted him and said, "Oh yes, I know Tom." Colonel Desmond looked at me like, "How do you know the general?" and on a first-name basis. That was General Bowles's style. I don't know how some of these senior leaders have this kind of memory and ability to keep track of those they meet. Not only did he remember me, he went on to say, after Randolph, you went to Korea, and then you must have gone to another assignment before coming to TAC. What? He even knew my full background of where I've been? I said, oh no, General, I came here from Mosant because I did a consecutive overseas tour with Colonel Clopas. It's an incredible talent. I guess that's why I never became a general. Yeah, that's the reason. So as time passed, I continued to forge a great relationship with Colonel Horney, in part because our branch was so involved with everything that was happening with the merger and the integration of Air Combat Command and just the work, of course, that we were doing for the directorate, because we were going in so many new ways to benefit the overall program. There was the need for a staff visit to a base in the Carolinas, and I think it was Seymour Johnson. Colonel Horney liked to get out on some of these staff visits, and yet he barely was able to do so. This was a trip that he especially wanted to go on, and so it was just the two of us on the visit. As we drive onto the base... The sign says, welcome Colonel Horny and MWR team. He says to me, so I guess you're the MWR team, with a chuckle. Then he said something that I will always remember. He said, they're just trying to butter me up. Well, it doesn't work. That resonated with me because, of course, when anyone has a senior person coming onto a base for any purpose, there's a certain amount of fanfare, too, yes butter them up. Yeah, of course, they're smart enough to realize that's the purpose of sorts, and so anyway, we're walking to the lodging office, and within the military, officers that are O6, or colonels and generals, are considered DVs, or distinguished visitors. The civilian equivalent are GM-15s and SES, or Senior Executive Service, civilians. He stops short of the building and says, Oh, I forgot to grab my orders on my desk. They're typically, typically required to check in to lodging. I said, That's no problem. You're on my orders. Because we are traveling together, orders typically have all the travelers on one set of orders, regardless of rank, primarily for accounting purposes. He said, You're on my orders? I'm sure he was thinking, How can you be on my orders? Yes, since we're traveling together, both of our names are on the orders. Remember, he was the most senior colonel in the Air Force at the time, and then he said, People have been taking care of me for so long, I don't even know how things work anymore. It's understandable, and yet I think he did a quick amount of reminiscing when he had more control over what was going on around him. Well, that's just how things go. Another trip I made, this time by myself, was to Shaw Air Force Base, and it was winter, and I have a cat calling up on the desk. It's ai tr- can't see Kona. It's a trip where I drove down from Langley, since it wasn't all that long of a trip. So I'm moving along, and as I get partway down, there's a storm with snow and mostly freezing rain. The roads were very slick. I wasn't in a place to stop, so I kept going, and watched smarter people driving with their right two tires on the gravel next to the shoulder for more traction, so I followed suit. Obviously, we weren't going very fast. We came up on a crest of a hill, and as we moved down the hill and around a bend, of course, your vehicle will gain a bit more speed, and I knew not to brake too hard But as I came around the bend, I see a police car stopped along the side of the road with his lights flashing. So I have to move back over into the lane, and I misjudged the stopping distance and gently, oh ever so gently, bumped into the police car. (laughs) Oops! The officer was very understanding. I was in uniform, which I'm sure also helped a great deal, and he asked where I was going. There was no damage to either vehicle because I really was just barely moving, and he said, just keep it slow. You have at least 40 minutes or so before you're going to be past the slick roads from the storm. That was a relief. I made my way and eventually got to my mission destination. I don't think you ever forget the first time you hit a police car. Most of my trips weren't like these two, as most go on without a hitch. I really liked getting out to the bases because, first, it was good to meet people in person and, equally important, to see their experiences at the bases firsthand, because you're making policy and you don't always know how it's going to affect things, plus, putting faces to the names is also more reassuring when you want to reach out to some people to get some input before you make some decisions. Neither of the two Bettys rarely traveled, and so it was good to have a face-to-face with those we worked with on a weekly and sometimes daily basis, and they would always ask about the Bettys because they worked with them so closely. After the merger of MWR and services was announced, it was going to phase in over a period of about, I think, three or so months. There were some immediate benefits for officers because, as you know, the directors of MWR were not commanders. Promotions beyond major without a command position or experience was a big challenge for officers. Services were led by a military commander and had the wartime missions for food service and housing, among others. There would still be some civilian directors of combined organizations at base level, but very rarely as most were going to be led by a commander. One of the biggest changes was at Air Force Headquarters because that meant the stand-up of an air staff or a Pentagon office that combined the services structure and pull in the MWR operations out from the personnel center at Randolph Air Force Base. And this was the same at the major command level. This was a benefit for MWR officers because it eliminated one level of command having to previously report to personnel before going to the commander of the major command. Okay, I know that was a lot of organizational jargon. The cliff notes are MWR and services would look more like other organizations on base and would be responsible across a very wide spectrum of operations. Most bases, MWR and services would become one of the largest organizations on the base, albeit with a majority of civilian employees. And this is where I fit in perfectly. I had that breadth of experience in MWR and in services. So I was on several committees that looked at how the facilities would be aligned in each of the squadrons as well as designing metrics for the units. For my branch at TAC, our primary bases doubled. I remember there was a meeting where I was presenting some proposals, some proposals on organizational structure. And as often is the case, there was a lieutenant colonel in the room of about 20 people who were compelled to ask a question. You know, the ones, the ones that always have to be the smartest person in the room. Before I could respond to his question, Colonel Horney quickly jumped in and said, Tom just explained that and we just moved on. The expression on that guy's face was comical. Of course, the boss knew of this officer's reputation and wasn't going to let him attempt to show that he knew more than I did. It would be two years before the organization was simply services dropping the longer unit name. Last week, you may recall that Rich and I became very good friends, and he invited me to his parents' home in New Jersey for Thanksgivings and some Christmas holidays. I went several years in a row, and it was very nice. It was like I was part of the family and quickly enjoyed going to New Jersey. Being Italian, you can bet there was a ton of food and holiday cookies were everywhere. The family would gather at the family home. The cookies all looked delicious and they were on tables everywhere. There was a flat-type cookie that looked like a snowflake. It looked really nice. I took a bite and went, oh my, what is that flavor? It was more of a surprise, kind of like that red bean-filled donut in Korea. I asked Rich what that cookie was. Oh, he said, that's one of my favorites, it's a pizzelle. A puzzle. Well, it has anisette flavor, otherwise known as licorice flavor. Okay, mental note, not my favorite. Living not far outside of Philly, the family were fans of all the Philadelphia sports teams, especially the Eagles football team. Now I didn't know anything about football and had to learn quickly. At the time, I collected eagles. And so that's how I became an Eagles fan. So when I watch sports, especially if I don't know much about it, when a team scores, it's good, right? Well, I would cheer no matter who scored, and I would be starting to get some pretty odd looks. Oh, so we only cheer when our team scores. Okay, I can do that. There was another advantage of learning a bit about football. When I would go into the office on Mondays during football season, at least I could engage in some of the conversation, albeit I'm sure people could tell I was still a novice. These were great trips, and I remember them very fondly. It was fun to learn about Rich's youth from family members, and it was especially wonderful to meet Rich's paternal grandmother, and while she passed, she was amazing and was a treasure to engage conversations in. At Randolph, remember that Ed and I completed Squadron Officer School, or SOS, by correspondence, which is pretty much a key requirement. While most captains go to SOS in residence, completing it was really important for any further advancement, just in case you don't go in residence. Yet I kept wondering when I was going to go in residence since several of my peers had already attended. One thing you learn pretty quickly in the Air Force is that you, yes, you need to be the strongest advocate for your career and fight for it. I learned that I hadn't gone yet because there were some on the staff who didn't complete it by correspondence and they were sending them first. It really wasn't fair because they didn't complete it for like the last five years and didn't have that initiative. Regardless, in 1991, I went to SOS. SOS is like any training in the Air that is in residence, and that is that it's competitive. It's competitive individually and competitive by flight, which is how each group is organized. The course is only seven weeks, which is actually a long time considering the activity at the command. Of course, no one is indispensable our flight did well. I have been lucky that since basic training through SOS, I've been part of a team that did well. So that's actually a pretty good thing because it makes things just so much easier. We were the second best flight of 50 and like the Miss America pageant, if the chief of staff flight or that top flight can't fulfill their duties, we'll move up. Okay, well, that's not really true. So as you would expect, we're also the squadron right-of-line flight, which means we're the best flight in our squadron. There is a training report that goes back to your unit. And of course, it's going to be positive since you won those awards. And since you won the right-of-line flight, a letter is sent back to your leadership in addition to the training report that you were part of this group. In hindsight, while there are individual awards as well, The real focus of SOS is to emphasize that everyone is part of a team and when one succeeds, you all succeed. It was a good experience and I was glad to get back to work. Ahead of going to SOS, much was going on organizationally, as you know. In addition to all of that, Desert Storm was also launched in august of 1990 after iraq invaded kuwait this was the first major conflict that the united states was involved in since vietnam and as a combatant command we were very active with coordination among bases while everything seems important of course conflict rises to the top we were involved with with coordinating key aspects of the MWR mission and coordinating on the services mission because that transition was going on. Early on, transportation of fitness equipment, library books, and recreational equipment superseded some other types of equipment that you might expect. The reason? Since those early weeks of Desert Storm were in a waiting period, Keeping the troops occupied, fit, and ready was important, and that's where MWR came into play. We sent thousands of books, movies, and other supplies and equipment across the AOR or area of responsibility. Looking back at the TV show MASH, they had fitness, recreation, intramural sports, and remember those movie nights. It was kind of similar in a way, to why that was important, and I think many people, when it's peacetime, aren't aware of how important the MWR mission is, until you see how important it is during periods of conflict. Not to simplify things, the adage of idle hands are the devil's workshop applies, in a way. In addition, we're coordinating with services on their mission, which was food service Lodging and mortuary affairs. Moving as quickly to hot meals versus MREs or meals ready to eat is key. Having a place to stay also obviously very important, and we had to anticipate the loss of life. Services has the responsibility for mortuary affairs, and you'll see that in future episodes as well. Personnel, on the other hand, Has the responsibility for casualty affairs. The difference is that personnel has the responsibility for the initial informing of the family, handling of the life insurance, and those kind of things, while services handles the requirements from that point forward. To recap, we are engaged with preparation and deployment for a war integration of two career fields, and the merger of two combatant commands, along with our daily day-to-day operations. I'm also starting my program at William & Mary, and will share more stories about that adventure next week, as well as how my branch made some very significant marks on the entire command in preparation for the stand-up of Air Combat Command still pretty junior, there are also some new challenges of being a supervisor. I had some lessons learned early on that were important for me later on, and I'm glad I was able to learn them earlier in my career. Have a great week, and thank you again for listening and sharing the podcast.